Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Commissioner Hester Peirce. She's the commissioner at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Prior to joining the SEC, Commissioner Peirce conducted research on the regulation of financial markets, which is where she first encountered Bitcoin. She has proposed a safe harbor for digital token projects and has been a vocal proponent of the SEC's role as one of ensuring disclosure to help people access information needed to make decisions for themselves, rather than a merit regulator or enforcer. What I admire most about Commissioner Peirce is her principled approach to rulemaking, that the rules are there to protect and serve the people, and to do so, one must engage with the people. Commissioner Peirce, thank you so much for joining me. Now, I believe you have a disclaimer to share. Thank you, Jacob, for that nice uh, introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I do have to give my standard disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views, not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Thank you. And with that, I thought we'll dive in to stablecoins. And it's the top of everyone's mind these days, given what's happened with the UST collapse. And Chair Gensler has said that the agency should address stablecoin risks as the asset-linked cryptocurrencies raise concerns related to financial stability and monetary policy. You've said that potential regulation should make room for a trial and error regulatory framework and that some people have suggested there are different potential options for approaching stablecoins. Where do you see the role of the SEC in the future of stablecoins? Well, in part, that that question has to be answered with reference to Congress, because Congress is ultimately going to decide whether it's the SEC or the banking regulators or someone else who should be looking at stablecoins. It is an area that Congress has already started to think about. There's a bill um, that's been introduced, for example, by Senator Toomey that relates to stablecoins. And I think it's because it's kind of one concrete area, it's one that either that Congress can kind of take and deal with on its own. And so I think that's one that is likely for that reason to, to get congressional attention. But also, as you mentioned, with recent news, I think there's even more attention on stable coins. And so it's it's likely that that's an area that will, will garner attention. It is important to think about not just stable coins as a whole group, but to think about different types of stable coins, because there are a lot of a lot of them out there and there are differences across how they're they're set up. And so that is something that will certainly play into how they're regulated. What I what I like in this area and in, in every area that we're, we're talking about crypto regulation in, we need to be thinking about it's it's an emerging area. It's one where there is experimentation now. There are going to be things that work. There are going to be things that don't work. And so whatever regulatory framework we build has to recognize that 
it's an iterative process and, and, and allow for that iteration to happen. And so that's what I was referring to with that comment. I think it's, it's important that we, we allow that room to experiment, but also think about how we can build in protections. I mean, obviously there are some very um, sad stories that have come out about people who have lost money. And, and I think it's important to underscore here as in every other area that when you're making a purchase decision, uh, when you're deciding to put your money into something, you really need to be thinking about whether you can afford to lose that money. You need to be thinking about what your personal risk tolerance is. And, and so I hope that even before a regulatory structure goes into place, people will take this as, a, as, as a, an opportunity to remind themselves of that lesson that you have to be careful about what you do with your money and that the consequences of not being careful can be can be severe. And when you say that this was something that would come from Congress, would that be in the form of legislation enabling the SEC to act within the area? So that's certainly one option. Now, I should say if a stable coin in its current form already fits within existing SEC regulation, it's something that we could regulate already. But when Congress is looking at stable coins, they're thinking, should we create a whole separate regulatory regime for stable coins? And what would that look like? And, and that could be something where they say, yeah, we want the SEC to be involved to make sure that if it's a backed stable, a collateralized stable coin, that it's actually backed by what, what they're saying it is and that they're properly disclosing it. But one could also say, you know, we think this is more like a, a bank-like product and should be should be regulated by the bank regulators, maybe create a special charter for these. There are different options, right? And so if you're gonna build a regulatory framework, that that ultimately, that direction ultimately comes from Congress. Right. Okay. Thank you. I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach. And your father was an economics professor. You've worked on Capitol Hill during the financial crisis. Given your background, I imagine that you've seen much more than most. How has your upbringing or certain experiences shaped who you have become and how you think about policy? Are there any specific events that have altered your thinking or solidified your approach? Yes, yeah, certainly growing up and hearing economics discussed at the dinner table between my parents was influential. Although I will say that it wasn't really until I went to college and ended up taking economics, microeconomics specifically, that it really altered the way I thought about the world because I started to understand why certain things work and why other things don't work because incentives really matter. And, and the, the, the markets provide information to people that enable them to make better decisions. And so that's a really powerful concept. And, and so I loved economics. That that had a big effect on me. And ultimately, when I went to law school, I didn't want to lose that economics. So I was I was sort of aiming towards something like securities law that allowed me to merge the two and to think about economics as part of what I what I did as a lawyer. So that was certainly influential. And as you mentioned, I, I was on Capitol Hill during the financial crisis. And then as Dodd-Frank was being developed, as the rescue packages were, were the rescue program was being designed. Um, and so certainly that was an influential uh, event for me. I started to understand the importance of regulation and shaping behavior. 
poor regulatory decisions can have massive ramifications. And it's not just this, oh, we need more regulation. The, the question is, do we have the right regulation? Because if you have the wrong regulation in place, it can create terrible, terrible uh, consequences to the markets. And, um, you know, it also underscored for me the importance of ensuring that financial market participants bear the consequences of their bad decisions. And so that, I think, contributes to the resilience of a financial system. But certainly anyone who, who lived through that financial crisis, either, you know, in or around the markets, that was a, that was a defining moment. And it, and it was for me as well. I can't even imagine what the day-to-day would have looked like at that time. Was it markedly different than what your day-to-day might look like now, just given how quickly things were moving at that time? Yeah, things were moving quickly and people were scared and legitimately so. These were big problems and it was not easy to figure out what the right solutions are. So even though I have subsequently been quite critical of some of the decisions that were made at that time in the in the up to the financial crisis i i certainly understand that it's very difficult to make decisions when you don't know where the problems are all are you don't know the magnitude of those problems but that brings me back to this to this notion that transparency is very important so the the more that market participants can understand about about what things are worth, the more quickly you can get problems worked out. There can be um, pain in the short term, but that can have benefits for long-term financial stability. And another lesson that I think really was underscored for me is the importance of, I'm gonna call it decentralization, You know, picking a, a theme from the crypto world, but I think the importance of, of not having the financial system concentrated, but having it spread out, that can be very helpful for the resilience of the financial system. So those are themes that I think about as I'm trying to think about regulation. And and I also think about unintended consequences of the regulations that I'm working on, which is one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about getting good, robust public comment, because regulators are people too, and they're only seeing part of the picture and they need to get the input of other people as they're developing regulations to try to figure out what the consequences will be. And another lesson I I still think about all the time is the importance of going back and looking at what you've done to see, is it working the way it was intended? Does it have good or bad unintended consequences? Are there are there tweaks that we should make? Are the costs too high and the benefits too low? Or, you know, are the benefits much greater than we thought? It's always good to go back and look at your work and see how it's working. Is there a system in place for that now? Or is that something that could be developed? Like, I'd love to hear how something like that would work in a role like yours. Well, we do do retroactive reviews of our rules, but sometimes we get so caught up in doing new rulemaking that we don't necessarily go back and and think carefully about existing rules. And right now we're certainly in a period of a lot of new rulemaking. We are doing some retrospective reviews of some rules, but those are rules that we just adopted and that haven't even had a chance to take effect. So my my suggestion would be to wait to do a retroactive review until you've had a couple of years of 
experience with the rule rather than redoing rules that you just did because that doesn't seem like a good use of resources. I can see the logic behind that approach. I'd love to talk about this regulatory catch-22 that the crypto industry is facing and your proposed safe harbor. So for those who don't know, the idea was a three-year reprieve from securities law to be granted to developers and projects that can demonstrate they're raising funds and making progress towards an open source network. These projects would be required to make full disclosures regarding their raised funds to the public. This would allow developers to fundraise, investors to access more detailed project information, and innovations in this emerging technology would remain in the U.S., You put this safe harbor proposal 2.0 on GitHub. Very, very cool. Allowing crypto lawyers and others to submit pull requests. Are you still working on the safe harbor proposal or is it unrealistic given the the circumstances today? It certainly hasn't gotten traction with my colleagues at the SEC. It has been a a version of it has shown up in legislation that was that was proposed by Patrick McHenry in the House. And so there is a chance that something could happen with it on the legislative side, or there's a chance that we could, I could convince my colleagues that we should think about something like this on the regulatory side. And I would say I I haven't given up hope entirely because it does really address a problem that I think my, my colleagues have identified, which is, and, and one that I, you know, it's a concern that I share, which is that purchasers of tokens are not getting information that they need to make those decisions. And so the market is working on that. I mean, people are pushing back a little bit more. In in the old days, there was a lot of money just flowing into whatever token offering. But, you know, now people are, are asking more questions. But I think the information asymmetry problem is a real problem where the People who are developing a protocol know what they're doing. They they're, they know what their plans are. They know what the token e- economics are. They know how many tokens they're planning to launch out there. They they can they know how much progress they're actually making. Who's behind the project? And it's that kind of information that I think we need to make sure that the buyers of the tokens are getting. And doing it within the context of a securities framework means that those disclosures that are being made would be backed up by the anti-fraud protections. And so you can't just say anything you want, because if you do, then you could be subject to an enforcement action based on those misrepresentations. So I think that kind of a framework that really focuses on the kind of information that purchasers of tokens need is one that I could potentially convince my colleagues to to look at but so far haven't been successful um, you know I still I still remain optimistic I have appreciated the fact that there as you mentioned people have have actually interacted with it or, or are able to interact with it on github and some people have interacted with it and and so I appreciate that kind of feedback I put it out there not as not to say this is this is the end all and be all but to you know have people, shoot at it and say, no, this is not good, or, or this would work better, you know, to adjust it, to make recommendations. This does need to be an open process. And, and I'm the last one to say that I, I have all the answers on it. But I think it does need this kind of an idea does need to be the subject of continued conversation. 
I have a couple other questions on that, but one thing that that's clear to me is you're able to put your ego aside and say, look, I don't have all the answers. Help me find the answer. And there are some people who might not be able to do that, especially people when they get into a role of power. Is that something that you develop naturally? Is that something you've always had a tendency, this ability to say, hey, look, you might say I'm wrong in some regards, but here's the best that I've done. Can you help me iterate on that? Well, I think the the role of commissioner, I'm one of typically five, we're down to four right now, but typically five commissioners. And that's a role that the the commission structure draws on many different people. So not only the commission itself, but the staff, right? But, But the idea is that you're bringing five people from different backgrounds with different strengths, different um, experiences together to make decisions. And that's, that's premised on the notion that those five people can make better decisions together than any one person would make on her own. And I really have been, you know, I, I really think that that's a, a nice structure and I've been pleasantly surprised to see the different, the different strengths that different commissioners bring and that I've, I'm able to draw from. So I think that that's certainly one piece of of why I think the way I do. But I've also spent a lot of years studying regulation. And I know that it can be very easy for regulators to think that they have all the answers. But I've seen when sometimes that doesn't work out well, right? And so I think remembering and knowing that, that regulators are just people trying to do their best with limited information reminds you that you need to open the the discussion up and get more input. And, you know, our government is a government not of personalities, but of process for a reason. And and I think that's something I'm very committed to as well. And also, if you get on crypto Twitter, if you thought you were right all the time, you just have to spend a few minutes on crypto Twitter and they'll tell you that you're wrong. They'll, They'll point out all kinds of things about yourself that will remind you that you better you better be be a little bit more realistic about your own your own limitations. Yes, crypto Twitter does a great job of keeping everyone in check. Just to go back to that safe harbor proposal, how can supporters move this forward? How can crypto lawyers, crypto participants, crypto advocates help to make something like this a reality? Well, I think one thing is is the the iterating on it. That's helpful. I think the other is to to continue to talk to other regulators about the importance of having information that is really specifically relevant to these kinds of token networks. What is the information people need? Are they getting the information? And I think also just reminding there's a lot of discussion of clarity around crypto regulation. And it's it's a matter of frustration for me and others. But I think trying to explain that we can do more than complain about this. We can actually put out very pragmatic solutions that are designed to address the legitimate concerns that people have raised. And so I think making that point, and there are, I think people are recognizing more and more that there are a lot of people in the crypto world who really do want regulatory clarity so that they can just think about building their project, do it in a way that's compliant with the rules and not spend all their time thinking about regulators and rules. So I think that realization is coming is coming to the fore more. And so this is really the time to say, hey, we need something where 
it addresses this information asymmetry problem. Here's an idea. Here are our iterations on that idea. And the role of the SEC is one of disclosure and one of reducing information asymmetry to help people get the information that they need to make a decision for themselves. It's not a merit-based police. You don't decide whether X is a better investment than Y. If smart contracts and all other aspects of a project exist publicly, transparently on chain, where do you see the information asymmetry existing? And why would a regulatory body be needed there? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fun question to think about. Can we displace the regulator entirely and, and just rely on transparency on chain? And I think it is important for regulators as they're thinking about what are the objectives we're trying to achieve? And for the SEC, that is, I mean, eliminating information asymmetries is one of those objectives. Although typically we think about our objectives in three buckets, which is investor protection, facilitating capital formation, and then protecting the integrity of the marketplace. So as regulators are thinking about those objectives, they should also be thinking about what are the tools out there to achieve those objectives? And, and do regulators even need to be the ones that are that are exercising those tools or can the, will the market just naturally exercise those tools? So I'm open to the idea that, that code transparency can do more of the work than the regulator's role. I think regulators will still have a role to play. There will be frauds. There, there, you know, there, there may be uh, things that are not on chain, which for, for some people is hard to believe, but right. And so there, there, there are lots of people who are not going to be sitting there reading code and they're going to need plain English disclosures. And so I, I, I don't think that there's there's no room for a securities regulator. I do think that there's room for the securities regulator um, relying more on the technology to do things. I mean, again, one of the reasons people are drawn to this technology is that it provides everyone access on equal terms, which is really attractive when you compare it to a financial system that too often has not given people access on, on equal terms. And so there are a lot of things about the technology that we can employ for, our, for achieving regulatory objectives, but I think there's there's probably always going to be a role for the regulator, especially because I don't think we're going to eliminate centralized intermediaries altogether. I think there, there are likely to be some people who want to interact directly with the code and they don't want to go through any other institution. There are others that are going to want to rely on an institution that they're going to be able to call when they have problems. And likely that institution is going to be subject to regulation by either the SEC or some other regulator in Washington. I remember trying to wrap my head around why some of these disclosures made sense. And my biggest takeaway was the idea of this efficient market hypothesis, where if you actually have this information out there, well, then the analysts will be able to read the public disclosures, they'll make informed decisions, and then prices will reflect those informed decisions, which is where the retail investor gets in. Like, who reads Edgar? Who reads CDART? Not too many people see all the filings made by a certain company, just like not many people go in and audit smart contract code. Could you see the SEC or could you see some sort of agency coming in with that smart contract auditing functionality? Or how do you think that could look going forward? I, I really don't think the SEC's 
role is to audit smart contracts. That may be the role that you would have third parties play. And I think a lot of people are looking to third parties to play that role now. But I really wouldn't put the SEC in that role because I think it then ends up becoming too much of uh, we have to approve your code before it goes out. And that is something that I, I would push back against for a number of reasons, including, I think, you know, the people's freedom to put to put code out there much as they have, they're free to publish things. We have to be very careful in that area. But I, I do think that we are trying to incorporate technology, even in the way we do our disclosures, that will then make it easier for other people to, or machines, to read the disclosures and pick out potential problems or potent places where they want to invest based on, on what they're combing through through all that data and figuring out. Um, so I view it more as let us do our best job to put the information, to get people to put the information out there and, and let other people figure out the tools they want to use to process that information or the people they want to rely on to process that information for them, which is, which is fine. I, I, will, I do want to go back for a second to the accredited investor issue because that is one that I hear about all the time. And I, I push back against the notion that we're deciding who can invest in what based upon our conclusions about their sophistication, but that is that is the system we have in place. I, I, would, I would rather have a system where people could opt into a more protected system, a more protected area, or they could say, you know what, I'm going in eyes wide open and realizing the SEC is not going to be mediating the disclosures for me here. I, I'm taking responsibility for that myself. That isn't the system we have now. Given that, is there a way that we can open the doors to accredited investors who are accredited based on things other than wealth and, and, and income? And we did put out um, a request for people to come in with ideas about how that could be done. And I do hope that we'll, that the SEC will eventually move on that and allow some other measures of sophistication. We, we open the door slightly to certain financial professionals, but, but I think beyond that, I'd like to see us move to a place where people could be sophisticated, be deemed accredited based upon a course of study or a certification, something along those lines. So I hope we can make progress at some point on that. I hope so as well. And I think a course of study to prove sophistication and to prove requisite knowledge, if you can have a way for people to prove that they understand the risks, that they will act in a, not act in a sophisticated manner, but they have the requisite knowledge to make informed decisions, it seems to be a, a no-brainer. Well, and I certainly think that people need to be making decisions that are that are wise for them. And it's easier for them to figure out what that is based on their own facts and circumstances that they know better than the regulator knows. It would be nice if they also had some, some background in thinking about what the risks are and how do you identify red flags? How do you figure out where you should be really concerned and, and where you can, where the risks are lower? A lot of people do that already through self-study. I mean, I've met people who have just spent their nights and weekends reading up on investing, looking at what, what other people in the, in the investing world do and looking at the mistakes other people have made and figuring out how to avoid those. So I, I'm a person who thinks that people can teach themselves and can 
um, throw themselves in into something and and make good decisions based on their own their own you know desire not to lose a lot of money. People do need to be careful, and I always underscore that if you're going to get in there and make your own decisions about investing, you need to understand the risks. You need to think about those. So as we have this this discussion about how we should change accredited investor, we always need to be underscoring. People need to be careful. And that's certainly true in the crypto space as well. As I'm sure all your listeners are are aware of that, but it's it's good to remind people you can get sort of you can get drawn in by the prospect of very high returns and you you've got to always remember that you're taking a risk too. And if it sounds too good to be true, it, it probably is like a thousand percent APY. And I think people worry too about, you know, their the fear of missing out is 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 real, but but people need to remember that there's always going to be another opportunity to invest because we're we're always as a society we're always building new things, building new companies. There always are going to be new new projects, and so if you miss out on one thing, there'll be something else. So I would say don't worry about missing out. I think we should take that clip and have it play before everyone makes a purchase decision, whether it's an NFT or a crypto going forward. That might solve a lot of a lot of issues in the space. What one of the factors that sold me on the idea of decentralized and permissionless on the idea of crypto was decentralized and permissionless value transfers. And underscoring that was the idea of DAOs. And because they allow people to work together in a new way, they harness humanity's ability to cooperate, much like the invention of the company, which largely existed through government support, changed the business landscape and world. Many suggest DAOs are poised to shape the future of the world as well. And they point to DAOs specifically as not meeting the efforts of others in that everyone is both an owner and contributor. And I don't know to what extent you can even answer this question, but at what point is a protocol sufficiently decentralized that it could not meet the efforts of others prong of Howie? And how should people think of this while building? Well, Jacob, I share your your enthusiasm about DAOs and the ability to bring people together in new ways that are much easier with with the technology that we have now. And so that has the potential to un- unleash talent in a way that we haven't before and also to allow people to to profit from their own activities in ways that they haven't be- been able to before. There are though a lot of legal issues around designing a DAO and figuring out how it's going to slot into the existing legal framework and there's some important issues, right? If a DAO does something, well if a company does something you know that you can go and you can sue the company. If a DAO does something, who are you going to sue? Are you going to sue everyone in the DAO? Where do you even serve the papers? So these are real questions that I think need to be addressed. And I think states are thinking about how to address those. Typically, corporations have been chartered at at the state level. And and so that, at least in the United States, that's the the, the way it works is is the states are the, the, the ones that deal with corporations and the SEC sometimes tries to step in and and take over corporate governance law, but that really is the province of the states. So here too, the states are, Wyoming, for example, has been thinking about how do we build a legal framework for DAOs. And and this too will be an iterative process and there's going to be a lot of work and thought around it. So 
those kind of basic questions need to be answered. And then I think realistically, you can have a very large DAO, but is everyone going to participate in every decision? Or are you going to pick a few people who are going to participate? Are those people even going to be identified or are they going to be anonymous? Those are all things that can make it quite complicated and can make the analysis quite complicated of what exactly do you have here. So the other thing I would say is you can't only look at things through the lens of Howie. Howie is one test that we have for determining, the Supreme Court came up with for determining whether something is an investment contract, which is one subset of what a security is under the securities laws. But the securities laws in the United States have a very broad definition of security. And so even if something isn't being sold, as, as uh, even if you know a token, for example, is not being sold as part of an investment contract, it could, depending on its characteristics, meet the definition of security in some other way. For example, if you have governance rights that are associated with with a token, or if you have equity, if if you're if you're actually getting a portion of of the equity of something, or if you're getting a revenue stream from something, these are all things that could end up being facts and circumstances that make something look like a security. So I caution people that, as with many other areas in crypto, the law is not particularly clear here how it will apply. The facts and circumstances do matter, and you could end up in a situation where you are dealing with the securities laws, and so you know go in carefully. And I hope that I hope that scholars in the securities world and in the corporate law world will be putting in a lot of effort now to think about what a what a realistic legal framework would look like in this space. The concept of equity is so interesting because it's this legal concept that exists. And then you could have this ownership of a DAO that exists solely on chain and isn't necessarily reflected in the meat space to a certain extent. And even the idea of a DAO as well, where it's supposed to be this autonomous organization, but if it's relying on, like you said, a certain subset of people, is it really autonomous in any sense? And once you get to these DAOs making decisions in the real world, you're you're opening the floodgates and you're making life hard for people like you <laughs> as commissioner. And I will say too that regulators have a tendency to want to find someone they can hold responsible if something goes wrong particularly. And so we will, I mean we meaning regulators will always be looking around to say who who can we who can we identify as being associated with this and so i i do think people need to be careful that what looks decentralized to you we might say no it looks awfully centralized to us and sometimes we'll both agree no you know this they claim to be decentralized but it sure doesn't look decentralized but you know we all sometimes you you the community may want to see something as decentralized but remember that we the regulators are are going to be biased the other way and it, it's such a, it's such an interesting area that will continue to develop. And and one big part of it 
is that idea of an evolving security. And people have talked about, oh, well, maybe X crypto was a security when it was released because nothing can, I've never seen anything start and reach a widespread scale if it began decentralized. Are there factors where a security could evolve into a non-security over time? Is that something that makes sense to you or, or you think is justified given how crypto is developing? Well, things can change, but I think one of the reasons that we're having this conversation is because when we've looked at token offerings, we've looked at them and we've said, you're, you're selling this token and you're surrounding it with promises, promises about this being an investment that you're going to be able to, to earn money. It's going to be, you won't have to do anything. You can just sit back and you're going to earn money. And that is, is viewed through the lens of the Howey test because because you're not only buying the token, but you're also getting these promises. Much as in Howey, you not only were buying a slice of the orange grove, but you were getting the promises that you could sit back and do nothing while someone else did all the work and you would get you would get uh, you would earn a profit from that. I think the mistake here is that we've conflated this idea of the token itself being the security when often it is this token plus the promises. And so if we if we took a step back and sort of thought about it more from that perspective of the token just being part of what's being offered, then at what point is the token just out there without those promises following it around, right? On the secondary markets, do the promises that were made follow it around? Those are the kinds of questions. And so I think I think the analysis is a bit more nuanced than than we've we've talked about it as being. And I think that has made it more difficult to figure out how can some of these projects move forward. That's a really interesting point. And particularly as it may pertain to NFTs, where you have these project roadmaps that are now accompanying the release of what is art to a certain extent. It's interesting to think about that, though, because when you think of shoes, something like Nike shoes, you buy a pair of Nike collectible Nike shoes. And they might get sponsorships from famous athletes, which might make these value the value of the shoes go up. And you're relying on Nike to not get in trouble with the law and not lead to any issues causing these shoes to, to lower in value. Do you think that's analogous to NFTs? Or is there something that people might be missing when they think of NFTs in the securities context? So I, I think you're right to point out that that difficulty that you can think about lots of things in the same way that we've been talking about tokens recently, which is whether it's shoes or the example I've used in the past, you know, something like collectible beanie babies or collectible watches, or there are a lot of things where a company will try to build a brand. And so they're selling you not only that object, but the promise to continue building the brand. And so how do we think about that consistently with how we're thinking about tokens? And it can be a very difficult line. And that's why I think it is important for people in all of these areas to tread very carefully, even with NFTs, where some people thought, no, you know, we're, we're going to be outside the securities laws. People need to be thinking about whether something they're doing is going to trigger that same kind of analysis. And they also need to be thinking, does the NFT come with some kind of rights that make it look 
like it's, you know, more of a, some has governance rights or again, is, is there revenue, the right to, to certain revenue streams associated with an NFT? People need to be very careful in this area. The securities laws have very wide reach as I think people know by now. It's unfortunate that we haven't done the work of putting some more parameters around what what where the guardrails are and wh- how people should be thinking about this. But until we do, people need to be really putting their securities lawyer glasses on to think about a lot of the things in this space. Being a, a commissioner of the SEC is not an easy job, and crypto did not make that job any easier. Uh, it's a bit of a catch-22 when it comes to that, because once you put these guardrails up, I can, that's where everyone's going to flow. So you have to be very cognizant of, of where these guardrails are going to be and what advantages they offer, I can imagine. One thing I have to touch on, or else crypto Twitter will will disown me, ETFs. And you, you got the name Crypto Mom after your dissent on the decision to not allow a Bitcoin ETF. These are available in Canada. Why not in America? And on a podcast, you, you had said when regulators wait too long, it makes it much harder. How do you think about that when it comes to the idea of an ETF today? Well, so you're right. I did, I, I did write a dissent in 2018 when we disapproved a Bitcoin spot ETF, uh, ETP. And, um, and I continue to argue that the, the reasoning that we've used for not approving one of those just doesn't hold up. It's not consistent with the reasoning that we've approved for similar products in the past. We're not a merit regulator. And I think this is an area where we've kind of slid into merit regulation. And now that we've waited as long as we have, the market has grown bigger there's more interest in from sponsors. There's been interest from sponsors in this area for a while, but in some ways the stakes are higher now. It's very hard for us to approve one of these benefiting one particular sponsor over others. That's something that I think about. And also, I mean, we do have the advantage now of other countries having tried this before us. And so we've seen that these have, have worked and, you know, even they've, they've gotten, um, a lot of people have been interested in them. And and even with those volumes, they've tended to work. And so that is helpful for us to have that international experience. But I continue to think it's difficult for us because we have been using the same reasoning for years now to say, no, you can't have one of these. And so how do we then pivot and say, well, we've, we've changed the way we're thinking about this. What, what is it that drove that change? So it's, I think it's an unfortunate example of where we've used regulatory process to make decisions that are better left to the market. People can decide they don't want these or they want these. It's really not our decision as long as, uh, as, long as you know, again, facts and circumstances of how these products are designed matter, but it, it's not our decision to make that choice. We have allowed a futures-based product, I think, in part because the futures market has been up and running for a while and is is regulated in a way that we're comfortable with. The problem is that that doesn't meet the need for or the the market demand for a spot-based product. And so we're going to continue to get pressure, I think, from the market to have a spot-based product, even with the futures product out there, which is it's, it's just a different way of getting exposure to the Bitcoin market. And so we'll continue to have to confront 
this question of of why and when and it's it's it continues to uh, amaze me that we've waited we've waited as long as we have and again whatever we do will not be an endorsement of the product and that's another thing I, I think is actually really problematic because if you wait for a really long time and then you come out and you say okay we're gonna let this product go through will people interpret that as the SEC endorsing the product which we certainly do not do with products. People have to make their own decisions. Their financial advisors have to think about whether that product is right for them. That is not our role to play. And I, I wouldn't want anything that we do to come across as endorsing a product. It is not my role as a regulator to tell you which products are good and bad. No, you're, you are not the financial analyst who is picking stocks or, or cryptocurrencies at all. One thing you mentioned there was the, the back end and, and what's going on with for me, what came to mind was crypto custody. And current rules may discourage companies from holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets as the accounting forces charges when prices drop, but doesn't allow for anything to be recouped when prices rise. Is there any reason for this? And if this rule has the tendency to make it less attractive to be in the business of custodying, providing custody, or make it more expensive to provide custody, what's the policy goal or rationale here? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on. One is the question of how do how does a company account for crypto on its balance sheet? And that's something that the accounting regulator in the United States, FASB, has announced that they're thinking about. Another question and one that was raised recently when we issued a staff accounting bulletin is how do how, how do companies that are holding crypto assets on behalf of other people, how do they how do they treat those assets? And that staff accounting bulletin has attracted a fair amount of attention from both market participants, banking regulators as well, because the consequences of that staff accounting bulletin, you know, are, are real. And and they're ones that when it, when it came out, I mean, it's important, I think, to underscore, because a lot of people don't understand this. The commission, as I said, is made up of five commissioners, we make we make decisions on regulatory policy and we make decisions on enforcement actions. But there's a whole staff that supports our work. And there are a lot of decisions that are delegated down to the staff. And there are, there are a lot of authorities that staff can exercise on their own. Staff in our accounting office can issue staff accounting bulletins. And that's an appropriate function for them to play. But the the types of things that should be dealt with in staff accounting bulletins, you know, are, are limited and staff accounting bulletins don't have the force of, uh, you can't bring an enforcement action, for example, based on a, on a staff accounting bulletin. The changes that were, or, or the policy that was laid out in that staff accounting bulletin, I think is one that would have benefited from public input. And so I would have liked to see us handle this in a different way. I didn't get a chance to weigh in on that staff accounting bulletin. The public didn't get a chance to weigh in on it. The FASB didn't get a chance to weigh in on it. Um, so I think that we need to be more careful when we approach these kinds of things, how we approach them. And again, not, not, not just treat it differently because it's a crypto issue, but actually try to use, use good process no matter what issue we're dealing with.
I mean, along those lines, I would welcome anyone's feedback on the on the SAB. What what real world consequences will it have on you or on on the companies you're advising? That would be helpful feedback for me to get. And when people are providing that feedback, is there a best practice in terms of giving a specific example that you can point to as real world effects? Well, again, I think it's just tell me what the real world effects are and be as specific as possible. Tell me if you think that the the approach laid out in the SAB is the right approach. Let me know that. If you think it's it's inconsistent with the way that we've approached other other comparable things, tell me that as well. But be very specific in your feedback. And if you have questions, our Office of Chief Accountant stands ready to answer questions about the SAB or about other issues. So if if you're not comfortable raising those questions directly with the with the chief accountant, bring them to me, and I'll 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 bring them to the to the chief accountant, who obviously has much deeper accounting knowledge than I do, and so plays a really valuable role by guidance. Thank you, Commissioner Purse. And I had a couple other questions, but I want to just end with this last one. And I'll ask two, but you choose whichever one. First, what habits have helped you cultivate a successful career? Or the second question would be, what advice were you given or lesson did you learn early in your career that shaped who you have become? Well, I think one piece of advice I would give is just you should be enjoying what you're doing. That doesn't mean you're enjoying every aspect or every day of, of what you're doing, but you should generally be, be enjoying it and be open-minded about what comes next. Don't have your, your whole future planned out in such detail that you think you know exactly what you'll be doing 10 years from now, because I think that openness, that intellectual curiosity is what's going to lead to a more interesting career. You know, keep your, keep your options open, keep your mind open talk to a lot of people, learn from a lot of people, ask questions early. That is a lesson that I, I learned early in my career at a, at a law firm is that if you don't ask questions early, the consequences could be bad. So, so that is the advice, Jacob, I'll give to you as, as you embark on your, your legal career. Thank you, Commissioner Purse. And you've been one of the most transparent people at the SEC. Your dissents are instrumental. And your dissent, for example, outlining how crypto could be encompassed in the broker-dealer rule, despite crypto not even be explicitly mentioned, was applauded by industry members and myself included. So thank you so much for all you do. And thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this episode. Thanks for having me.